Titus chapter 1. And last time we looked up to verse 9, looking at the qualifications of a leader in the church. Uh, His testimony in the home, his testimony in the community, and his testimony in the church. And that each of those aspects uh, need to be in order before he is chosen as a leader. Once you're a leader, you're going to have bumps along the way. And that's where grace, mercy, and peace be unto you. Uh, Interesting to the pastoral epistles, he adds the word mercy in in between grace and peace. And often leaders need mercy to be encouraged to keep moving on. Uh, Even though they they are people that are qualified, they're hitting bumps in the road. And sometimes leaders do that, Uh, sometimes with the family, sometimes with their own personal life, Um, sometimes with uh, things in their business that got away from them. There's different aspects. And uh, again, they're to be encouraged and as a leader, work with them. And uh, so often people look at those qualifications of a leader going, forget it. <laughs> you know, even if I qu- qualified, uh, it's too scary of a thing. I mean, it's so overwhelming. Um, I-, I don't ever want to try because once I am qualified, I might become unqualified. And then the, the embarrassment of, of uh, being kicked out of leadership and that kind of stuff. And, and no, that's not the case. Um, God works with us. He doesn't kick us out. And uh, we work with the leaders. We don't kick them out. And so it says in 1 Timothy 3, he who desires to be an overseer, a leader, desires a good thing. It's a good thing to desire to be a leader in the church. And that should be encouraged, not um, discouraged. So the whole point was if somebody came to Timothy and said, man, I'd like to be a leader, uh, to not say, right, Um, you know, Forget that, and it's never going to happen. Do not ever have that kind of attitude. And I'll tell you what, many of the leaders that we have in our church, I never would have picked them out as a leader, okay? But it was in their heart. The Bible clearly says don't discourage them. And we pointed out the direction they needed to go to, to grow and to be discipled and some areas in their life. And, you know, sometimes uh, a few months later, sometimes a few years later, and they're some of the most dynamic leaders we have. And, uh, you know, it's like, um, Saul, Solomon, excuse me, Samuel, trying to pick out who would be the next king from the sons of Jesse. You know, not even dad considered David. Uh, he was out with the sheep. He had to go fetch him and bring him in. It's like, okay, ooh, I never would have figured this one out, but this is the one the Lord picked because you don't have any other sons, right? Okay, this has to be him. And, uh, of course, he was the greatest of uh, the kings of, of Israel. And so... Um, again, I just, I can't encourage you guys enough to let God raise you up into leadership. You know, we have, I don't know, 30 home fellowships or whatever it is. We could use 90, 150 home fellowships. I mean, it's not like we are limited here. Um, we need more. So it's not like, well, we really, you know, already have five too many home fellowships that we really don't even need. We got 10 guys in the wait. Um, it's not like that. Um, believe me. Constantly looking for men who will raise up and take responsibility and take the role of a leader. Um, it's often thankless. Uh, it rarely pays off, uh, at least on this earth. It'll pay off when we get to heaven. It's usually a lot more work than it's worth from an earthly perspective. From a heavenly perspective, it's always worth it. And uh, so I can't encourage you enough to let the Lord speak to your heart and and to be raised up. And so last time we were looking there at verse 9, and particularly he said, hold fast to the faithful word as you have been taught to, to cleave to the word of God. I love that verse in 1 John 2.14. It says, and I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you overcome the wicked one. They're strong. Why are they strong? Because God's word abides in them. King David in Psalms 119 says, I'm wiser than the ancients. I'm wiser than all my teachers because I've made your word my delight and in it I meditate day and night. And so David found himself to become an incredibly wise person. And of course, spiritually we saw he was an amazing man of faith. And um, it's because of God's word and his life. 
And uh, we see him singing it out through the Psalms as he went through some very hard times. And we looked last time, and I love that story in 2 Samuel 23, where we're looking at David's mighty men. And uh, we come down to Eleazar. And Eleazar was planted in a field, and the Philistines came running at them. And everybody took off, but he stood right there. And he stayed until um, he protected that field, and the Philistines were dead all around him. And it said when he was done that his hand was stuck to the sword. He couldn't release the sword. It was stuck. It had been glued to the sword. And that's where we want to be as we go through the life and we're fighting all of the spiritual warfare in many different areas of our life. At the end of the day, uh, we're cleaving to the sword. We're stuck to the sword. We can't release it because we've been super glued to it and it to us. And, uh, of course, the Bible is the sword uh, of the Word of God, right? And uh, the Word of God's a two-edged sword, and so it's a wonderful analogy there. And then again, he says, by sound doctrine, there in verse 9. Uh, so as you've been taught that you may be able, by sound doctrine, to exhort, that's the positive side of encouragement, and to convict, that's the negative side of encouragement, those who contradict. And, um, you know, my radio program's called Words of Encouragement. And sometimes the program ends. So repent and uh, turn from your wicked ways. And that's the end of the program. And I've had people say, it didn't end very encouraging today. Yeah, it did. It was a negative encouragement, but it was an encouragement to repent. Um, and so, again, as a leader, and so often you hear in, in, in certain circles to only be positive. And, guys, truth is not only positive. Truth is negative. There's two sides of the coin. And as you study through the scriptures, we are far more warned about the negative than we are encouraged towards the positive. And so, in an essence, you could say there's much more negative truth than there is positive truth. And that's just the, the way it weighs out. Uh, as you study through the Gospels and Jesus' teaching, you'll see that. And so, we need to give the positive, absolutely. But we have to point out the negative. And so through the word of God, we need to be strong and we, we have sound doctrine. We have solid doctrine. And because we've studied through the scriptures. And with that doctrine, we go forward to exhort, to encourage them, and then also to convict them with the word of God to turn uh, from what they're doing wrong. We see in 2 Timothy, hold your finger here in Titus and just turn back a page to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Again, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy is written to Titus's good friend, Timothy. Both of these guys followed Paul. Both of these guys were put in places to pastor churches. Neither one of them, I don't think, planned on doing that. They were called to the same ministry as Paul, but uh, out of necessity, they had to pastor for a season. And in 2 Timothy 2.15, he said, be diligent to present yourself approved to God a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And so often we want to use the Bible only in a devotional sense. We need to use the Bible devotionally. We need to read it and just let it encourage us and strengthen us and to say, wow, man, my heart's been encouraged. We don't always feel that way, do we? Often we read the word and we're tired and we're, you know, we don't get much out of it. But then as we meditate it on through the day, Wow, man, it's, it strengthens us. And we realize, man, I, I did get something out of it. Didn't feel like it, uh, but now it's been a day or two. I did get a lot out of it. And so, but there's also the time where we have to just dig in and study the word. And uh, we hit parts of the Bible sometimes that are hard to understand. We had parts of the Bible sometimes that seem contradictive at first glance. And as we study it out, uh, we realize, no, there's no contradiction there. But man, as we study it out, it brings us into the truth in a, in a deeper way. And this is what he's saying, that you would um, not just casually read the word and, and have a general sense of what it's saying, and that's what you're presenting to people, but to know that you know the word of God in a sound, powerful way. And notice there in chapter 2, verse 24 now. 2 Timothy 2, 24. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, 
but be gentle to all. Notice, able to teach. Patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And so when somebody is off doctrinally and they're going now to from, wow, this is an interesting point to feeling like they need to persuade others to believe their point. They go from an unhealthy sheep to a wolf. And at that point, whether they're an unhealthy sheep or a wolf, they're hindering others from sound doctrine. You got to jump in there. Now, you're not going to try to use your authority as a leader to, to beat them. And that's, again, the, the servant of the Lord is not to quarrel. He's not, uh, you know, putting on the boxing gloves, going in there to, to beat up somebody. He needs to have a, a heart that's gentle, kind. He needs to be able to teach. In other words, the guy's saying, but look what the scripture says. Yeah, but it doesn't say what you're saying. Well, that's what I think it says. Well, let me show you this verse over here. Because if that's true, then what about this verse? Oh, wow, I didn't know that verse. And if that, let me show you this verse. And hopefully you'll be able to sway them to believe the truth. And it says, perhaps they come to their senses. 99% of the time, the reason somebody has a false teaching and then begins to promote that teaching, to try to sway others to that teaching, it's pride. That's the issue. The issue really isn't the doctrine. It's just a platform in which they can draw men unto themselves, in which they can bring people to uh, idolize them, and they can be the leader, and, and it's, it's an insubordinate thing that they're doing. And so it's really, when you, it comes down to it, it's not really the issue itself. It's the pride of their heart. But there is that 1% that's out there that it really is. They're just truly stumbled because of the lack of the knowledge of the Scripture. And the little bit they do have, they're just running with it. And, um, and so that's where you have to jump in and say, hey, no, 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 here's the truth. And being gentle, again, you've got to know the Word to be able to teach it. And then in patience and humility, slowly, gently helping them see the truth. And then also in chapter 3 of Second Timothy... Chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. In other words, it's God-breathed. It's profitable for doctrine. Notice what else? For reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. So, four of the things, two of them are to negatively correct people. Or uh, reproving and correction. It's, in other words, a... Uh, a disciplinary reason we have the word. And then also on the positive side for sound doctrine and instruction righteousness. And notice in verse 17 that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the word of God is there for us uh, to be able to help people to stay on course. Well, going back to Titus chapter one with this in mind, we've got the word of God, the sound doctrine of the Word of God. We have the, we're studying the Word of God. Now we're able to teach the Word of God. We're in the Spirit um, and gentleness and kindness and love. And now we have the, the God-breathed, inspired Word of God. And in verse 10, For there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. So you have many people that are really not a part of us. They gather with us at the Bible studies, but the reason they gather at the Bible studies can be a number of reasons. We often in time discover that guys are here to pick up chicks. That's the real reason they're here when a push comes to shove. There's some people that, you know, their band isn't together anymore, and so they come to church to get in the band. There's some people that come to church because they have kids and they want their kids to... Go to a place where there's other good people they can get to know. There's a lot of reasons why people come to church. And there is a percentage of people, I don't know what that is, that do come to church for the right reasons. And there's some that are just, again, they're not submitted to God, thus they're not submitted to the church leadership, and they're just idle talkers. 
They just constantly speak what's in their head. And it does affect people around them. They're just blabbing. They don't realize how they're affecting others or infecting the sheep. And then there's others that they have an agenda. And they are setting out to deceive. They, are, they came here because it's a large congregation and there's a lot of people uh, that they can try to uh, circumvent to bring them unto themselves so they have their own little group. And, uh, I, you know, something with our leadership, just to make a note, I'm amazed through the years the discernment our leadership has. And on many occasions, not just a couple, on many occasions, I'll have some of the guys say, you know, there's not something right with that guy. I don't know what it is. And I'll have four or five other guys say, I've got to check in my spirit about that guy. Something's going on. Or sometimes that gal. And they're keeping an eye <laughs> on the sheep to see, is that uh, just a wounded sheep or is that a wolf or whatever? And uh, a lot of times, these people are very likable people. They're, they're very charismatic people. They're, they're people that often get hooks in a number of people's lives, in a number of different groups. And when they then come out to show what they're really about, um, a lot of people can't see it. The spiritually mature and those with discernment can see it. But there's often groups of people that just cannot see it. And thus they're stumbled by it when uh, they are confronted. And, uh, but I, I just, you know, our leadership has se- kept an eye on that to be able to see who is a deceiver, who's an idle talker, and just to be able to talk to them. Many of them are of the circumcision. They were Jews. Now, the Jews are God's chosen people. And if you know anything about Paul's teaching, you can go back and read Romans 9, 10, and 11, amongst other places. Paul said repeatedly, the gospel must first be preached to the Jews, secondly to the Gentiles. And, and in essence, he, he lifted up the Jew as God's chosen people. We as Gentiles are grafted in. And not that we're second-class citizens, but the only reason the gospel came to us Gentiles, Paul says, is because the Jews, reje- or the Jews rejected it. And therefore, they shut the door on the Messiah, so the Messiah opened the door to us. And so, in essence, the Jew would sort of be a celebrity in these Gentile churches. And often, uh, the Jews would be able to say, oh yeah, well, about Joseph, you know, in the Jewish writings of the Talmud or the Mishnah or whatever, you know, we also know in Jewish tradition, it says this about Joseph. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, and also, you know, and so these guys would have, well, you know, I understand what you guys are saying over here in the Greek language, but did you know in the Hebrew, it says this, and then they could rattle something off in Hebrew, and it would be very impressive to the Gentile believers, as it would be to us Gentile believers today. If somebody came in here and knew Hebrew, had been raised a Jew uh, in the synagogue, and now they've become a Christian, um, and uh, they have some insight uh, into the Old Testament, we would all pretty much be dazzled with it. And, <clears throat> and this is what these Jews that were deceivers, that were not true sheep, they came in and said, yeah, I know that Pastor Titus is teaching this, but, you know, he's a Gentile. You know, he doesn't even know Hebrew. <clears throat> you know, he was never, he's never even been in a synagogue. Now, I had the whole first five books of the Bible memorized the time I was 12 years old. And so it would be very impressive to these guys. <clears throat> and so then these guys were basically from their teaching things to the Gentiles that ought not to be taught. For example, in Galatians chapter 5, turn back to the left a, a few cha- pages there, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, there in verse 1. It says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty of which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, 
that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, he's a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You attempt to be justified by the law. You've fallen from grace. Skip down to verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And so there in, in the Galatian church, um, it was um, there that we see that these Jude Judaizers came in. Thank you, Don. These Judaizers came in and uh, they were trying to persuade the Gentiles to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses. And uh, this was something that was happening. Of course, Peter sort of hindered that truth by when the Jews came from Jerusalem, he would get kosher in a hurry. And then when the Jews left, he'd say, bring out the bacon, let's go. And, uh, and it was stumbling the church. And so again, as we study about Peter, he was a little uncertain uh, where he stood on the, the whole being a Jew or uh, not being under the law thing. But nevertheless, we see that Paul is saying to these guys, look, if you follow the teaching of these Jews and you get circumcised, then you're a debtor to keep the whole law, all 615 laws, or 613 laws of the Old Testament, you have to keep. And of course, nobody can do that. That was the whole point of the law. Paul talks about that in Galatians 3. That was the tutor us to see that we need a savior, that we can't keep the law. Now, back in Titus chapter 1, verse 11, these Judaizers, who are again trying to persuade the Gentiles, he says in verse 11, you need to get in there whose mouth must be stopped. It's a strong word. Tell them to shut up. That's what he's saying here. They subvert whole households. There's whole groups of people now that are are meeting, and again, when you say household, you remember the extended family. So there's, there's 50 people that have left the church, and they're all meeting over here at this other house over here, um, and they got this Jewish teacher there teaching them the Mishnah and the Talmud and Hebrew and, and getting them all circumcised and, and teaching them how to, it's like they've they got their little Jewish synagogue and they're calling themselves Christians. You've got to stop this before this, this continues to grow. They're teaching things which they ought not. Now, he's judging their heart. God's given him an insight here. It's for the sake of dishonest gain. So the reason these guys are starting their own church is because they want money. Or the reason uh, they're trying to persuade these Gentiles to want to know more about Judaism was to sell them the books or the scrolls or to uh, give them Hebrew lessons. Whatever it was, somehow it was, it, was, it was giving them a job. It was them getting money for the people. That was the real motive. It wasn't necessarily because they believed these Gentiles had to do what they were saying. But, hey, if I can get a group of people and teach them Hebrew, that's going to give me a lot of money. Or if I uh, am able to teach them what the Talmud says or the Mishnah, um, and you know, they all take this Hebrew class on the Hebrew history or whatever, um, then I can make some money on this. And that was their real motivation. Turn over to 1 Timothy, if you would. That's, again, just a couple pages to the left there. Timothy was having the same exact situation in Ephesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 1. There, starting in verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes, but rather godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is to love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith. Remember Jesus said, all the law is kept in this one thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So he said, look, we don't need to teach the whole law here. Just if you are following Christ with a sincere heart, or a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith, then love is going to keep all of the commandments, and then far beyond keeping the commandments. And in verse 6, 
from which some have strayed and have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. These guys are shooting from the hip. They're making it up. They, you know, if I were there challenging them, I'd blow them out of the water. Um, these guys are not great teachers. They don't, they don't, they're not qualified. They don't even know what they're talking about, really. In 2 Timothy, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, having the same similar problem. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, looking there at verses 14 through 18. It says there, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words to no profit, to the run of the hearers. So here again, they're striving over various Hebrew words and what they mean and what they don't mean. And, and, and it's just, it's a big word study that has no profit at the end of it. But you, again, verse 15, be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So you're able to take these guys on and beat them at their own game because you are so familiar with the scriptures. And in verse 16, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Their message will spread like cancer. Hyamedeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection's already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. So these guys here have this doctrine where the resurrection's already happened, and, uh, you know, we're, Jesus already came again and took the rapture. The rapture was already happened. And, and uh, now we're in this other dispensation of time after the rapture, whatever their teaching was. And there's a lot of weird end times teachings. Um, one of them who has a very weird end time teaching is Hank Hanegraaff. And uh, I know he's uh, the Bible answer man, but there's many things I disagree with him on. And, uh, and I'm not just saying me. I'm saying there's a large body of Christendom that uh, is seeing him head off in an unhealthy direction. And uh, it concerns me greatly. And uh, a lot of people listened to his program because it's right before my program. And he was going off on his end times teaching, which he alone holds. Okay? This is his own position that nobody else holds. And there, there's, there's a concern right there. When it's new, <laughs> what? It's not true. I mean, and, uh, but anyway, he's making a lot of money on selling his books and tapes, and, and uh, he does hold a position, and, you know, those who teach are going to incur a stricter judgment. But then mine right afterwards, I was teaching on Matthew 24, you know, teaching what most of Christendom teaches concerning uh, the coming of the Lord and the rapture and these types of things. And uh, it brought a number of questions. And uh, again, people were stumbled by it. And uh, not just in our camp, but in many camps. And so again, those are things that you have to be concerned about. But here he's, he's basically saying here that these guys are overthrowing the faith of people saying, well, why even be a Christian if the resurrection's already come? And causing them the, the, the end result of their teaching was why even follow the Lord at all then and in this particular scenario here. And again, his discernment was because they wanted uh, money that they were teaching, and that's why they were teaching what they were teaching for dishonest gain. Well, in Titus chapter 1, verse 12. Now one of them, a prophet of their own, said, past tense, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, most scholars speculate that if he just mentions a prophet historically, that there's one very clear prophet that came from the island of Cyprus, or the island of, um, I'm spacing here. Where are we at? Crete, thank you. And uh, I had a, a senior moment there. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts. And the one prophet of the past, back in the 600 BC, was a guy by the name of Epimenides. And Epimenides, um, he really hated <laughs> where he came from. And uh, once he was a, a Greek philosopher, known as one of the top seven Greek philosophers of all times. And uh, he basically said, you know, my relatives are a bunch of hicks. 
Uh, but the way he said it was there a bunch of liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Uh, in other words, anybody on that island is basically a worthless person. And uh, they're quoting this guy. Now, in verse 13, Paul said, This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. One is, it's true that they're saying this about the Cretans. And stop that kind of negative talk. Because that's just absolutely wrong. When we are in Christ, we become new creatures. All the old things pass away. All things become new. Don't, don't let these guys say, well, you know, we're a bunch of Cretans. And, you know, it's not like we can be holy because we're a bunch of Cretans. He basically stepped in there and said, hold on. Rebuke them for letting them say that about the people from Crete. The other thing is, it is true. (laughs) These guys are coming from a very difficult culture. And basically, all of the people that have been born again who are in the church, that was their lifestyle. They were liars, they were evil beasts, they were lazy gluttons. And you've got to help them get over that. And so rebuke them if they're being, if they're lying. Rebuke them if they're being evil beasts. Rebuke them if they're being lazy gluttons. Get in there and stop this uh, pattern of behavior that is a part of the history of that island. So which one of those? It's, it's up to debate, but most scholars, I think, lean towards them saying, Paul saying, you know, what the philosopher said about Cretans is basically true. And you got to get in there and help the church, the Christian believers, quit being this way. And uh, again, you look at the, the letter to uh, the Ephesians. Paul says there, let us quit lying to one another. So the church there, the Christians were lying to each other. And Paul had to step in there and say, hey, let's quit lying to each other. They were being bitter at each other. And Paul said, hey, you've got to stop being bitter at each other. Christ has forgiven you. Forgive one another. Come into chapter 5 in the book of Ephesians. He says, hey, let's quit getting drunk. <laughs> And let's be filled with the Spirit instead. So the church of Ephesus, we know for sure, was struggling with these things. Evil beasts. In Ephesians 4, he talks about how they were living an immoral life. And he said, hey, we've not learned Christ in this way. Giving in to our lust like that and letting our lust run us like that. Um, And so it's very possible that He is saying, hey, you need to rebuke the church if they're getting drunk. You need to rebuke these guys if they're being evil beasts or or lazy gluttons and step in there and and lay into them if they they have this pattern of life going on. And in verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables, commandments of men who turn from the truth. And as I mentioned a minute ago in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that's what Paul told Timothy that not let not give heed to the fables and endless genealogies. So again, the, the Jews have within their Jewish tradition a lot of pieces of information. So, you know, all the way back, you know, to Cain and Abel and Abraham, and as you look at the different Jewish writings, they want to give you all these insights. Well, the reason this was like that was because here's a little piece of information you didn't know. And Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, look, you have the scriptures in and of itself. You're thoroughly equipped, prepared for every good work. You don't have to have the Mishnah and the Talmud and all of the multitude of Jewish writings, all of the multitude of historical documents. You don't have to know Hebrew. You don't have to, you know, you by knowing the word will be complete. And Timothy was feeling, man, you know, I'm debating these guys who are scholars here in Ephesus. And, and uh, you know, they're able to quote all the philosophers and the prophets. And I, these Jews come in and they're quoting this passage out of the Talmud. And, you know, Rabboni, whatever said back in you know, whatever BC, and he said this and that, and I didn't even know about that, and boy, you know, and he's just going, look, they're bringing in all this information, but what it comes down to is just an endless genealogy, endless pieces of fact that could or could not be true. We know the word of God is 100% accurate, 
But on top of that, um, for you to try to bring this into the church, and I, and I know pastors, and I've seen that done, where they feel like they have to go back and study the writings uh, of, the, of the rabbis, even before the time of Christ, to read about them, to, to bring it into their message. And a lot of times I hear these quotes, and they're bringing it up as some great insight, and I'm like going... I got to check in my spirit whether that's true or not. I mean, I believe that that rabbi said that, but I just, I have a hard time with that. Um, I don't necessarily believe that that is true. And uh, then on top of that, again, the commandments of men. Remember, Jesus taught about this in Mark chapter 7. Turn over there if you would. The Gospel of Mark chapter 7. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, there in verse 5. Then the Pharisees and the scribes asked, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? Now they did wash their hands. They just didn't go through the ceremonial ritual of the washing of the hands. When we go to Israel, even to this day, usually we go to restaurants, and usually within the time we're there for a couple of weeks, I'm able to show everybody but uh, they have their pans and they have their cups there and, and uh, you dip some water up and, and they have a certain order of how you put the water on the hands, you know. First you put your hands like this and you pour it down. It comes off the bottom part of your hand and then you dip your hand forward and they pour water from the back and then you dip it off your pinky and it's just a ritual they go through and then all the water's gone and then you go with your hands damp off to eat. And just sort of let them air dry, and uh, and then you eat. But you've gone through this ceremony, and this is what they didn't bother doing. And so he answered and said to them there in verse six, "Well, did Isaiah the prophet uh, prophesy to you hypocrites, as it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men." For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. They had literally thousands of pages written on how to keep the Sabbath holy and how to make sure that things were purified. And, you know, if it was a clay pot and you cooked this kind of food in it, then you had to destroy it or you could wash it out. If you wash it out in this certain fashion, if it was made of copper, if it was made of iron, um, if it, you know, what, what shape it was, how high the lip was, how the lip on the top turned, um, all of these things. And they had a different process of how you purified it. And uh, it was an amazingly elaborate system. And, and people would literally take a lifetime just to learn how to wash and purify things in a certain fashion. None of this, which is in the Bible, (laughs) none of this is in the Old Testament. These are simply just traditions that one rabbi said, we at this uh, church here, you know, this synagogue, this is how we're going to purify the cups. You know, this is how we're going to purify the plates. The next generation, the next guy, the next guy, the next guy adds to it until you have uh, a few thousand years of all of these man-made traditions. And uh, if you go today uh, to Israel, you'll see people... Um, with their little hats, you know, the Jewish hats. And they'll have them, one put here, next guy on the side. One will be blue, one will be blue with black dots or whatever. And they all wear them in a certain angle, in a certain direction, in a certain size, certain color. And boy, they're really set on how they do it. And you'll see guys, every one of them, they have it just a certain angle, you know, just a little bit off center. And you sort of want to go up and fix it, you know. And then you realize everybody has it off just a little off center exactly the way that guy does. And uh, this is, again, this is their tradition. This is what they've been taught. This is how they wear it. And um, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul really got heavy on the issue. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16. He says, let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding festivals or new moons or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. 
Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility, the worship of angels, and treating to those things which he does not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that's from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourself to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerning with the things things which perish with the using, according to the commandments of the doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion, but it's false humility. It's not going to help neglect of the body. It's of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So they come in with this teaching, and, and you see it. I've, I've been in classes on how to evangelize in different groups, and I've heard tapes, and they say, okay, first of all, here's what you do. You know, you talk about people being lonely, and then after you talk about them being lonely, you talk about the hole in their life, and then after you talk about the hole in their life, then you talk about sins that people struggle with, and then you, you go through this thing, and basically, it, it's everybody. And it's not in the scriptures, but basically it causes the heartstrings to be pulled in such a way that would cause people to come forward uh, at the invitation. It's manipulation. And so people would often come in, and, you know, as we often do, we struggle with things. Well, you know, if you would just go through my 12-week seminar on how to overcome the flesh, you know, if you would just understand there's 10 different type of demons you're fighting against. And, you know, I understand what you're doing here, but you're only fighting against one-third of the demons. There's a whole other three-quarters of demons you have to fight in a whole other way. Where are you getting this information? You know, but these people, I mean, I can't tell you how they write the books, they have the seminars, and, and well, it's hard to get up in the morning, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, sometimes you're lazy and don't want to wash the dishes. It's like you're reading my mind. <laughs> you know, and, and they say, well, you know, that's because, you know, you need to do my method. You need to read my book. You need to go through my thing here. And, and, and then again, the whole point of it is to try to bring these people uh, into their sphere of control. And so, again, he says, you're free. You don't have to get into these commandments of men. We just go to the scripture. And when people are telling you you need to do stuff, you just say, what chapter and verse? And if there's not a chapter and a verse, just say, you know what, that's your opinion. Um, You know, if God's shown you that, then do it. But don't put it on anybody else because it needs to be in the scripture. What does the Bible say? Well, in Titus chapter one, verse 15 He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But even their minds and their conscience are defiled. Now this here is talking about the legalism, what to eat. Sabbath, certain days you have to rest on or worship on. And he's saying, you know what, to those who are free in Christ, it's pure. Now, don't take this passage and make it apply to anything you want. I've had people say, well, I'm going to move in and live with my girlfriend. Well, that's fornication. Well, maybe to you, but to the pure, all things are pure. Uh, no, fornication is fornication to everybody. And the fact that you have no problem with fornicating says your heart isn't pure. Um, but there's people that want to take this passage. It's, it's referring, again, in context to the Judaizers. And they're trying to get these people to a certain diet, you know, eat only these foods. And, you know, if you're eating uh, unclean foods, uh, you know, breaking the Jewish law, then you're, that's the reason you're struggling with sin. You know, give up your whatever it is, uh, food or drink, and, and then you'll find yourself being able to be right with God. And here he's saying, no, it's not eating bacon is <laughs> not going to make you pure or impure. Worshiping on a certain day is not going to make you right with God or less right with God. To the pure, every day is worship. There's a, uh, one town 
and, uh, and hungry where they're looking at starting a church. But it's a, it's a resort town. And the two hardest days everybody works is Saturday and Sunday. That's where 99% of the money for the week is made. And uh, so they're going to start a church there, but church is going to be every Wednesday night, and that's it. Because on Sunday morning and Sunday night, it would be ridiculous to try to have services because that's when people are working. But yet, uh, there's certain denominations that come in there and they try to tell everybody, you know what, you need to come to church and if you're not at church on Sunday, there's something wrong with you. No, where in the Bible does it say to worship on Sunday? It appears that they did that in the book of Corinthians, says where you get together the first day of the week and so forth. But it's not the day to worship. Um, We've had a couple Calvary chapels that had Bible studies only at night. And they said, well, you're not a real church until you start a service Sunday morning. And uh, in Brazil, none of the churches have churches on Sunday morning. They all meet Sunday night. That's just the tradition of the, of the whole country, all the churches, no matter what denomination it is. So there's certain mentalities we can get ourselves in that can be self-defeating. And so here he's saying, look, you don't, don't let these guys control you. You keep your heart pure towards God. Keep your eyes on the Lord and eat whatever foods you want to eat. Keep your heart right with God. Worship on the day that God's showing you to worship him on. Hopefully it's every day. And in verse 16, they profess to know God, but in works they deny him. Being abominable, disobedient, disqualified for every good work. Now, some would jump in here and say, hey, Paul, you're not supposed to judge people. Where is that in the scriptures? No. The Bible very clearly tells us that we're to judge people. We're to judge them, though, under discernment, not to judge them under condemnation. There's a heart where it says, hey, you're off, and the reason I want you to know you're off is because I want you to get right. But then there's a heart that says, you're off and, you know, damn you. You know, go to hell because you're off. And it's just this condemning heart of saying, you're off and you're damned, period. That's the end of the story. See you later. That, that heart is wrong. But yet to judge or discern that things aren't right, that we are supposed to be able to do. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7 if you would. There in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, it says, judge not. Now, that word in the Greek is the word kareno, which is a very clear word. It means to damn, to decree, to bring somebody to the sentence of judgment. So this is what he's saying. Don't damn people. Don't, don't tell people that you're not right with God and you're never going to be right with God because you're evil, Period. That we're never to do. Judge not that you be not judged. So don't have that heart of condemnation. Because if you do, obviously there's not something right with your heart. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. So the heart that you are judging people on, that shows, one, that your heart's not right. And realize that what you're saying, remember Romans chapter 2 says... You who judge another one, it's because you're practicing the same thing. The reason you're so fired up against it, it's because you're practicing it and you're really mad at yourself uh, for your own weakness. And then he goes on there in, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 to say, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. And so right there he says, okay, you see that something's wrong with somebody. Identify it. Confront them with it. But if you're, you have a condemnation in your heart towards it, it's because it's in you. So if I'm all mad at somebody for not being a certain way, I just need to stop. And realize it's in me. But I, I'm just totally blind to the fact that it's in me. And I need to go to Jesus. 
or need to go down to our Heavenly Father and say, hey, I know I've got this giant plank in my eye and I can't even see it. Help me. And as you now try to get that plank out of your eye, you're going to realize how hard it is, <laughs> how difficult it is. And now when you go to confront the brother with the speck in his eye, you're going to have compassion. You're going to have love. You're going to have a humble heart. And you're going to say, I'm the last guy that can point this out to anybody because I'm 10 times the sinner you are. But I have to. A lot of times people say, well, I'm the biggest sinner I know. Forget it. I, I, I can't help anybody else. That's the wrong attitude. The fact that that thing is in your life, you are the perfect person to help another person with that in their, own, their life as well. And the Bible doesn't give you an option. It doesn't say if you feel like it, go remove this back out of your brother's eye. It commands us that you now, you know that the speck is in your brother's eye. You are responsible to your brother to get that speck out of his eye. And we need to go to them and help them get the speck out of his eye. And then he goes on to say, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Look at the judgment in verse (laughs) 6. In the first five verses, he says, don't judge. And then he turns around and says, but discern who's a dog and who's a pig before you start trying to give them spiritual truth. So in other words, you're going to somebody saying, hey, there's this area in your life that's not right before God. Is it a pig who could care less? I got a speck. I got tons of slop. I live in the slop. You think I care about a speck? I'm a a wild dog. It just goes around and knocking over trash cans. Do you think I care about a speck? So you got to be discerning here. In other words, you have to discern that they really are a believer, that they really do want the heart of God before you begin to try to help them with spiritual things, lest they despise you for trying to guide them in a spiritual way because they have no spiritual temperature themselves. There in chapter 7, verse 15, just like Paul in this verse here, uh, in Titus 16, he says these people uh, are, they deny him in their works, they're abominable, they're disobedient, they're disqualified for every good work. Paul, or Jesus teaches us in Matthew seven fifteen, we need to beware. In other words, how do you beware? You're looking, you're discerning. If there's false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So I'm asking myself, is this guy really a wolf who's trying to persuade me that he's a sheep? So we can eat sheep as soon as I'm not around. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but every bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. So you observe them. I, we've seen guys come into church and and they're here, and they're only hanging out with the girls. And the two girls that they end up liking are no longer walking with the Lord. <laughs> and you, you look at this pattern, you're just like going, this guy is just a wolf. He's, he's here to hit on the girls. And then once after he dates them a couple times, they're too embarrassed to come back to church anymore. Or they're stumbled so much, they're not walking with God anymore. And you realize this guy is a wolf. Even though he's praying loud and singing loud and and acting like he knows the Bible and that's all he's concerned about, by his fruit, we can see that people aren't coming to Christ. They're actually walking away from Christ after uh, him being in their life. Well, in Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 33. Jesus talks a lot on this subject. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. The evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it in the day of judgment. For your words you will be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. So once again, he he says, make it known. Look at them. See what's happening. And then he says, you can tell by what they say. 
Now, I do want to qualify this. A lot of times we just say silly stuff that really is not coming from our heart. It's just trying to make people laugh. And, and so they would say, oh, I know what's in your heart now. You know, That's not always the case. Sometimes we're just out and out being silly and it has nothing to do with what's in our heart. But often people say stuff that they, after saying it, they even sort of shock themselves with how evil it was or how dark it was or demonic it was. And it's like, whoa, you got bitterness in your heart, man. No, 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 I'm not bitter. It's like, did you just hear what you said? Yes, you definitely have bitterness in your heart. It just came out of your mouth or whatever it is um, that's there. And so again, when a person's been born again, God's spirit comes into their life. They're not perfect. They don't say everything perfect. But there's issues in our heart that aren't right. And in some cases, they don't know the Lord. And outwardly, they're going through a religious system, but yet their life's fruit says they have not yet yielded their lives to Christ. And that's a job of the pastor, is to constantly exhort people to say, hey, our, you know, in our country here, there's a lot of people that go to Christian churches that are definitely not Christian. Okay? And that's where, again, if you're in Pakistan going to a Christian church, chances are you're a Christian <laughs> if you're going to the church, Christian church in Pakistan. If you're a Christ, you know, going to a Christian church in China, the fact is you get caught and arrested, I mean, you could go to prison, chances are you really are a Christian if you're going to church in China. But if you're going to a Christian church in America, you know, you could be going to a Christian church because it's tradition. It's because... You know, your family's done it and, you know, but there's really not been a true surrender of your heart yet to Christ where you're, you're given over to Christ and, and for you to live as Christ. And that's something that still has to happen. God has no grandchildren, only children. And just because your parents follow the Lord and your parents were yielded to Christ and your parents had good fruit doesn't mean that you have good fruit. But I, I go to church yeah, that doesn't make you a Christian. That's a good thing. And Christians do do that. But that doesn't guarantee you're a Christian. Okay? A Christian is somebody who is submitted to God 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm not saying we're perfect. I'm saying we're without sin. But that's a person who's truly yielded their lives uh, into the will of God. Well, again, in, in Luke chapter 6, Jesus talks about this again. And in John 15, he talks about it again that those who truly have good fruit um, and are abiding in Christ and, and growing in Christ are people that are truly born again. But these people who are wolves, they're professing to know God. They're sheep on the outside. But yet when you look at their works, what they're actually doing, they deny him. And again, their works are immoral. They're unfruitful. They're sinful. They're abominable. And these people are disobedient to God and they're disqualified for every good work. In other words, they shouldn't hold any position in the church. I don't care if they know Hebrew. They shouldn't be holding a Hebrew class. Uh, I don't care if they have the whole Talmud memorized. They have no business teaching because they're not born again. And they need to be born again before they can truly tell you spiritual things from the heart and the mouth of God. Because until they have Christ in their own heart, they don't have abundance of their heart to share with you the things of God. Amen? Well, we will pick up next time in verse 17. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we do ask in Jesus' name right now, as we finish up chapter 1 here, there is no Titus 1.17. As we finish up the chapter 1 here, we do ask, Lord, that... You would equip us, Lord. I I pray tonight that many leaders are being equipped. There's many people here that are willing to raise up and be those who encourage and convict, who are willing to be shepherds overseeing your sheep and that they would be anointed by you to share your word with people and build them up, strengthen them to do the work of the ministry. And 
Lord, we just ask tonight that your word would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, that you would shine in our hearts, Lord. If we're here tonight and you just spoke to us that our fruits are bad, our fruits are not good, that you just search our heart right now, Lord. Have we not surrendered ourselves to you? Have we said, I'll go to church, but yet outside of this time at church, we're not living for you. We're not living for you with what we're doing with our time. We're not living for you at work. We're not living for you when we're around our friends. We're not living for you in our free time. We know you've given us all good things to enjoy. But we also know, Lord, that there's a life submitted to you in all seasons, in every situation, around every person. Lord, search our hearts now. If you're here tonight and God's brought you here to hear that word right there, right now, just submit yourself to him. It's that simple. Salvation is a gift of God. To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Tonight, just say, God, forgive me. I'm not going to live my life for myself anymore. I yield myself to you, God, to live for you and you only. I submit myself unto you. Take my life now in Jesus' precious name. And thank you for your word again, Lord. It's so precious to us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.